0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Lynch and you're listening to What on Earth? Get
2: your f-ing gun off
3: me lower your gun! This is sovereign but
1: so An RCMP officer in tactical gear aims a rifle at people huddled inside a small cabin. A police dog strains at the leash as another officer then brandishes a chainsaw to cut down the door. This sound is from video shot by filmmaker Michael Toledano. It shows police dragging out Wet'suwet'en and Gitsen women, making arrests and clearing the remote area 1,200 kilometres northwest of Vancouver on a forest road. All to ensure work can continue on the coastal gas link pipeline that has divided First Nations. The company has permits from government and it says 20 elected band councils support the project. But there are hereditary Wet'suwet'en leaders who are opposed. This week, we look at what this clash means for the climate and why protest might be a potent way to cut emissions. Farther down that long unpaved road is another camp. Unastodden people began building what would become a home, a symbol of defiance and a healing center there a decade ago. Frida Hewson was one of the first to move there. She's a chief of the Unastodden House of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Her years of defending the land, water, and her culture have earned her the Right Livelihood Award. Hewson traveled to Stockholm to pick up her prize last week. She spoke to us from the Healing Center just before she left. Hello. What has the strategy been over the past decade to prevent pipeline projects from going ahead on your territory?
2: It has been occupying the land. My dad told me that if you want to protect the land, you can't stay on the reservation they forced us on. You have to go back to your territory, build on it, live on it, and use it. Act like it's yours because it's yours. I left the reservation, left my home, colonized lifestyle, and moved back. Built a cabin, built a healing center. We built all kinds of things. Originally, it was on the way of Embridge, and that's how we were able to raise awareness about Enbridge's by building on their way.
1: I wonder if you can tell me what it has been like for you to go back and live on the land.
2: It has been a life changer for myself. Uh, Because we were forcibly removed, it felt like I was spiritually dead. And when I moved back to the land, it just like a spark was ignited again because I was reconnecting with the land. I felt alive again and I got my health back. I used to wear glasses. I don't wear glasses anymore. We have minerals intact in the water that flows by. It's clean year round. We drink right out of the river. That's how clean it is. So it's been a life changer for me and I've got my health back from being out here.
1: And out of this, um, you, you founded the Unisoden Healing Center. I'm wondering how that fits into this idea of resisting pipe, pipeline projects on your territory.
2: Well, over the years, as we were trying to protect our our lands, we realized our own people weren't standing by us. Even though they agree with us, we have been oppressed for so many years. We're struggling with addictions and all kinds of things that they're too busy worrying about a roof over their head, food under table to even be worrying about being on the land. So we said, if we heal our people, then we'll heal our land. So we said, we'll build a healing center to start bringing healing to our young people so that they can reconnect with the land
1: and care about the land. The flip side of of you going back to live on the land in that way is that you've also been arrested. And I wonder if you can tell me what that was like for you, what that did to you. For
2: myself, I saw it necessary. I was willing to sacrifice, arrest, to wake people up i knew if i took the arrest people would be outraged because this is my territory i have every right to be here and for me to be wrongfully dragged off my territory and put in jail it did wake people up and canada got shut down because i educated people by traveling around and speaking about what we were doing so i was no stranger when they saw me being arrested people were outraged
1: not all Wet'suwet'en people oppose the pipeline. In fact, five out of six band council chiefs have actually signed on to it. And I'm wondering, given the disparity, what do you think is the way forward?
2: I think the way forward is to bring in some peacekeeping circles to get everybody in the same room and get everybody on the same page. Because I've ironed out some relationships with certain people that thought I was angry at them because they're on band council or because they're working for industry. And I indicated to them, you're still my family. You're still my friend. I said, my fight's with industry and the government. It's not with my own people. Industry and government have since contact have been doing the divide and conquer tactics to try and get us to fight each other. And we need to be bigger than that and not fight each other and learn who the real enemy is here.
1: Now, we saw 14 people be arrested by the RCMP, um, and that happened during a big storm that was causing landslides and flooding and, and damage to property and loss of life. I'm wondering what you make of the timing of those arrests.
2: We were outraged and appalled that they were sending so much resources in the name of industry and ignoring the poor people that were struggling in the floods and people that were stranded with no food, those resources should have been sent there to help them. Poor people that were having a crisis. Instead, they send the resources
1: to protect a pipeline. I'm just wondering: Have you got a sense of whether this is making a difference? That that the that there is a chance that this project may never go ahead.
2: Based on Mother Nature fighting back and all my thoughts and usually whatever I say is going to happen in the future usually happens and I don't see this project going. It has too much opposition and LNG Canada already said that they stopped work for almost a week saying that the protesters they call us are costing them too much money. And they refuse to fork out any more money to CGL. So we know these delay tactics are working.
1: Frida Hewson, thank you. Thank you. Now that the RCMP has enforced Coastal GasLink's court injunction, the company says construction has resumed. But this whole cycle of conflict, of injunctions and arrests and standoffs, is the consequence of two legal systems crashing into one another. Canadian laws versus traditional Wet'suwet'en laws. And it's all playing out on unceded land. Gordon Christie is a professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. He has Inuit ancestry and does research in the areas of Indigenous rights and Crown-Indigenous relations. Professor Christie, hello. Hello. For people watching this from afar, how do you explain what's going on in Wet'suwet'en territory from a legal perspective?
0: Well, from a purely legal perspective, Canada is trying to apply its legal system to the Wet'suwet'en. But of course, it's all caught up in politics because really it's a clash between two legal systems. The Wet'suwet'en have their own legal system and Canada has its. Canada wants to continue to assert its system as really the dominant system, whereas in fact they're parallel at best.
1: Then there is the question, too, of, of elected band councils versus hereditary uh, chiefs and, and those two systems. How much clarity is there about who has legal authority over the territory?
0: In terms of who has authority over the territory, I think it's relatively settled that the Wet'suwet'en hereditary system has authority over their entire territory, whereas the band council system really was set up to manage the reserve lands.
1: And the Supreme Court ruling in the so-called Delgamuk case did that manage to clarify issues around who can claim ownership of the territory?
0: It, it didn't, didn't. I mean, on, on the one hand, the case went all the way to Supreme Court of Canada, with the uh, parties in that case being the houses of the Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan nations. And Supreme Court of Canada didn't look at that matter and question it. They accepted it. And so, at least indirectly, they they pretty clearly agreed that the people who have authority over that territory would be the traditional uh people, the, the houses and clans of the Wet'suwet'en and
1: Gidsen. But as you say, that's, that, that hasn't settled all the questions and that's why these conflicts and disputes arise. I'm wondering um, if, if the Wet'suwet'en have title, Supreme Court of Canada agreed to this, why did the government permit this project to go ahead? How, how could government do that?
0: it is a complex area of law. On the Canadian side, they've developed this distinction between asserted title and established title that is playing out on the ground here. The Wet'suwet'en clearly have title over much of their territory. I I would say over all their territory, but that's another matter. (laughs) Um, But they haven't gone to court to set uh, this title into place in Canadian law. They haven't established Aboriginal title. Um, There's no question the Wet'suwet'en have title over probably most of the territory that the pipeline's passing through. But until they go through this multi-year, multi-million dollar process of proving it, then Canada gets to play this game of saying, well, we don't know if it's really there, so we'll go ahead and pull the pipeline in your territory.
1: Now, both, both the province of B.C. and the federal government have said they will embrace and uphold the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or under, I'm wondering what guidance that offers on issues like this.
0: Well, it it should be a major um, part of this puzzle that that helps resolve these matters. But both the province and the federal government seem to be taking UNDRIP as something that speaks to the future. They're they're trying to implement it over the next who knows how many decades. And they're not using UNDRIP to address the past, which is the source of this problem. So if UNDRIP were to apply to this situation, which the province doesn't want to have happen, well, UNDRIP speaks pretty clearly to the idea that the Wet'suwet'en have traditional ownership over their territory, and they should have the right to make decisions about what happens in that territory.
1: Can, can you imagine um, if government was, in fact, addressing what's happening with coastal gasoline and what's through the lens of the UN Declaration on the rights of Indigenous people? What would cooperative decision-making look like in that case?
0: Well, I mean, if they could get to that point of just understanding that cooperative decision-making is it's called for in the UNDRIP then they would sit down as equals and negotiate a way of uh, working out a resolution to this problem. UNDRIP also anticipates, though, that there are problems that arise that can't be worked out through some sort of cooperative process. And UNDRIP speaks of there being some sort of independent body that then handles those kinds of problems. And that would be the proper backstop to this, would be to have some sort of an independent tribunal that isn't created by the Crown. It's created through the parties.
1: Okay, given that that isn't happening and doesn't appear to be on the horizon, how optimistic are you that there is a way forward on these kinds of of conflicts, given how disparate the positions are?
0: Well, there there are things in the background that, uh, you know, observers like me don't know much about. I mean, they had a memorandum of understanding that they got into a year and a half or two years ago. Now, part of the problem with that memorandum of understanding was that it was supposed to be forward-looking as well and not really addressed the coastal gas problem, but it was supposed to signal a new kind of relationship between the province and the sweat And that's what we need. We need no more rhetoric about new relationships, but an actual new relationship. If the province could, could you know sit down and realize that it's time to uh, to engage in a new way of thinking about these things, well, then we're on our way to some, some sort of resolution. But right now, the position of the province is that they're so deep into this, they can't pull back and they're just going to push ahead and get this done. And that's not going to lead to anything other than conflict
1: Professor, thank you for shedding some light on the legal aspects of this. No problem. Paper or plastic?
4: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know.
1: Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better, cotton or polyester, tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Across Canada and the United States, Indigenous activists are fighting oil and gas projects. Some of that resistance has delayed pipelines being built – Other protests have halted projects for good. Our next guest has added up the impact on emissions and the climate. Dallas Goldtooth is a campaigner with the Indigenous Environmental Network. He's the lead author on a new report, Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon. And yes, it is the same Dallas Goldtooth that stars in the show Reservation Dogs. Dallas, hello.
4: Hi, happy to be here.
1: Can we start with the report? Why did you set out to calculate the amount of CO2 that Indigenous activists have managed to keep in the ground through their protests?
4: Yeah, well, you know, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge and recognize the land defenders and water protectors out there who have been fighting various forms of extracted development, in particular, fossil fuels for generations now. And so we felt like it was needed for us as an organization, as a network, to support those struggles via this Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon report by kind of attempting to quantify the impact of those struggles. Oftentimes when land defenders, Indigenous communities are going in front of like political leaders or they're speaking about their struggles, they're often done in a very qualitative way. You know, people are just talking about, you know, their fights. They're talking about their lived experiences. And so what we felt is like, let's put some numbers behind this and really demonstrate how impactful the fight for Indigenous rights not only stops or delays these projects, but also protects the planet overall. I mean, there is a talking point that comes up very frequently in these struggles about how Indigenous rights is a pathway to not only building a just society, but it's also a pathway to address and confront the climate crisis.
1: And the numbers you come up with, the total, is at least one quarter of annual U.S. and Canadian emissions. How did you arrive at that number?
4: Yeah, so we worked with this organization called Oil Change International. That's their job. They crunch the numbers. They look at the data. They, you know, have a lot of amazing researchers that we worked with. To really dive into the publicly stated numbers around fossil fuel extraction and development, as most folks understand or may not understand, there's predominantly fossil fuels as oil and gas. But folks may not realize this, that there's just different types of oil and gas, and they have different emission levels. But there is a standard that has been generated by scientists who studied this stuff, and that's the greenhouse gas emissions equivalency. So we looked at the oil pipelines, how much oil is going to be running in those pipelines, and then you run the numbers to see how much emissions are going to be generated by that amount of oil going through that pipeline. The same for natural gas projects. And um, the same also for the tar sands development. There's some tar sands mining that was included in the report. We looked at the numbers that the companies gave themselves as well as compared those to the numbers that the government gave. And we came up with the greenhouse gas emissions equivalency of tonnage. Like they have it broken down to how many tons and there's a standard number for all of it.
1: Now, the report includes both projects that were stopped and delayed. Why?
4: That's a great question. And a, a good way to kind of break that down is to look at the tar sands. You know, the tar sands is one of the largest carbon bombs on the planet. It is definitely the the largest carbon emitter within Canada as far as the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are produced at the at the source, at the transportation of it, at the refinement. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why the Indigenous Environmental Network and other organizations like Indigenous Climate Action have stepped up and developed campaigns to stop the expansion of the tar sands in support of Dene, Cree, Matî families at the source. And in developing those strategies and looking at what is it going to actually take to stop the expansion we realized that really, you know, the tar sands are landlocked resources that need to get to the market, meaning they need to get to the ocean. So we developed campaigns that really looked at how do we actually uh, curb the expansion of, of this sector. And delay is a significant tactic, it's, it's a strategy that works because really, these projects cost money. They're on a time clock here. And the more we delay it, the more it costs them, it puts their their investments at higher risk. We've achieved some victories with that strategy in mind. Keystone XL being a perfect example of that, where we exhausted all routes by delaying that. You know, whether it's in the courts, whether it's in public education campaigns, whether it's uh, politicking whether it's just taking to the actual ground
1: and the trans Mountain project too would have been stopped since the corporation that was involved got out but for the federal government here deciding to buy yep. it instead so but the, but the, the I, campaign to delay that is underway and stop it too
4: so absolutely yeah there's a great example from a Canadian perspective is trans Mountain pipeline would would be done would be already made would already be in full operation the expansion project would already be in operation if it wasn't for the delay tactics that would have been deployed.
1: Let's talk about the current uh, events that are happening on the Wet'suwet'en territory. I'm curious uh, what you make of what is happening there.
4: I'm disgusted at the actions of not just the RCMP, the province of British Columbia, and and, you know the nation state of Canada, for this complete and utter disregard for the rights of the Wet'suwet'en people who have never signed a treaty. It's absurd, but not surprising that we are in the year 2021 and Canada is still asserting colonial violence upon Indigenous peoples and then saying it's doing something good for climate at the same time.
1: In that context, in this context of the so your report makes the link between justice, Indigenous rights and climate change. Why is that important?
4: If we are... To truly address climate change, which Western science backs up and supports Indigenous ecological knowledge for generations now, is that the only solid, most direct way for us to avoid further climate chaos is to keep fossil fuels in the ground, to stop the expansion of fossil fuel development. By recognizing those people's rights to live on their lands, to recognize their rights to manage their own territories and to do with those territories as they wish, as a result, you are you are working to protect the planet as dictated by science, as dictated by traditional knowledge that Indigenous peoples have held for generations.
1: Coastal GasLink says it's got all the permits that are required and it's got support from 20 elected band councils. I'm wondering what you would say to the companies and the people who support them who think that once a project has been approved and the money's been invested in it, it should go ahead.
4: Let's say China wanted to build a pipeline through British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And China said, hey, we got permits from our own government. So what's the problem? This is what suits in territory. They still hold title to their own lands. They have, they have their own processes. And for Canada, for, for Coastal GasLink to say, well, we got permits from this jurisdiction that is not the jurisdiction of the land, then it's absurd. That's, it's illegal. It doesn't matter.
1: Since your report was published in August, I'm wondering what, what kind of reaction you've had?
4: Uh, we've had a really great response. You know, I'm I'm based here in the States and, you know, we've, we've let the Biden administration know about the report. They're aware of it. You know, it really has helped us further our discussions with the administration, hold them accountable for continuing to build out fossil fuels here in the States. And it really, you know, helps... Our folks on the ground leverage their work.
1: Who have you presented it to?
4: Uh, The Biden administration, a number of representatives within the Biden administration. We've also handed out uh, boxes full of uh, printed copies at the United Nations Climate Summit, where we handed out to a number of world delegates and representatives from different states. But I want to make this very clear. We don't want to keep doing this by ourselves because we're holding a lot here. We're holding a lot. We've drawn the line and we're holding tight, but we need support. Dallas Goldtooth, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much.
1: And just a note, Coastal GasLink told us it hasn't laid any pipe in the section bordered by the two Wet'suwet'en encampments in the two and a half years since construction began. So, while the strategy of delay plays out on the West Coast, in the Maritimes, the Alton Gas project on the Shubenacadie River was canceled altogether. The company cited years of delay, court hearings, and strong Mi'kmaq opposition. Darlene Gilbert played a role in that opposition. The group she's in, known as the Mi'kmaq Grandmothers, fought for years to stop Alton Gas. I have a 19 year old daughter that grew up without a mom for three days a week, four days a week. So a lot of our quality time that we spend is taken from our family lives. But we know that it will turn around because our future generations will be protected. The water will be protected for them. Gilbert was not alone in her fight over those years.
3: Okay, um, I'm Gugu Wilkwes. My colonial name is Madonna Bernard.
1: When Bernard first started protesting, she had no grandchildren. Now she has five.
3: It's all in our DNA to know our role (laughs) in what we do and how we protect. So nobody tells me, go here, go there, you know. It's just, it's in our DNA to know that, to stand up and protect.
1: Standing up meant being arrested for violating a court order for Bernard Gilbert and one other grandmother. The younger generations, like my grandchildren, thought it was kind of cool that the grandmother was getting arrested for the land because they knew it wasn't something that she was being arrested for that was bad. They were all eventually released, but their persistence paid off. In October, the Alton Gas Project was cancelled.
3: So I was very excited and I also have a lot of confidence uh, in the grandmothers and defenders because they knew their treaty. They knew their rights.
1: That's Sherry Pictou, an associate professor at Dalhousie University and a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Governance. When she saw the grandmothers out protecting the Shubenacadie River, she wanted to learn more.
3: Why are they there? Why are they doing this? What's their story? I'm sure they're not doing this just for the fun of it. And. I was becoming even more concerned when certain media mediums were portraying them as troublemakers and so forth. And so that's what really motivated me. I said,
1: I'd like to create a space to hear their story. Victo is also Mi'kmaq from Bear River First Nation and a former elected chief. She brought the group together. There was no goal, no plan, only an invitation to talk and listen to their stories. And she thinks companies and governments trying to consult with First Nations might want to adopt the idea, not a hearing, but a talking circle with everyone in the community. That
3: methodology would be fantastic. Uh, it would be fantastic if more of those approaches that our people are used to communicating with each other and undertaking Indigenous laws that are rooted in ceremony and so forth to really think about that. But that's not how
1: the consultation process really works. In fact, she says it's a sharp contrast with the limited procedures in place now. A lot of times it's with government, but
3: most often they download that consultation responsibility onto corporations. Some indigenous folks like that because they can directly deal with the corporations and and negotiate with them, others do not. And what has happened in that process, it seems to stop at the elected chief and councils, and there's no mechanism for those chief and councils to consult with their broader constituencies.
1: PICTO sees the potential for everyone to build a future that protects not only the people, but the planet as well. That does it for us this week and we want to hear from you. Is climate action a divisive issue in your family? Do different generations see it differently? Let us know, our email is earth at cbc.ca. Thanks to our team, associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson is our engineer, our senior producer is Manusha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.